rested in the I'm ready for my cuffs up. I should come up sometimes, see me. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Pretty sure. Stuff that dreams are made of. Hi, Wendy here. Before we start off our episode today, I want to remind everybody to check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Also, please leave a rating or comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on social media by simply searching Silver Screen Time Machine, and please make sure you follow our podcast, Silver Screen Time Machine, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review. Today we have a guest on our show, Marty. Hello, Marty. Welcome. Hi, Wendy. Great to be here. Marty is a film actor. He's been in a couple George Romero films, also now a film producer. And I think you have a film just coming out of production. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the the film's called Pig Hill, and it's based on an urban legend up in the Meadville area where there was this sort of cult of pig worshippers that lived up there. And so we went up to Meadville and shot the film, actually, where where the urban legend took place. And uh, we wrapped production in May. Our director was Kevin Lewis, who directed Willie's Wonderland, which is running on Hulu right now. And uh, Kevin was great, great to work with. It was really, you know, fun. I I always have fun doing this. I'm still having fun doing it. And uh, we are, uh, the ink's not quite dry yet, but we're (laughs) about to sign with a worldwide distributor and sales agent. And so hopefully we'll have it out by next spring. It'll be oh, awesome. uh, available. Or they may they may hold it, since it's a horror film, they may hold it till Halloween. Yeah, I guess we should mention it is a horror film, Pig yes. Hill. So we will all be looking out for that sometime in 2024. Yep. I can't wait to see it. But today we are getting in our time machine and we are going back to 1967. And we are going to talk about which film? The Graduate. This is your pick, The Graduate. Yes. What draws you to this film? Well, I think it's an important film on many levels and any film student has seen The Graduate at least five times before they graduate. It's important on a bunch of different levels. It's important because it's sort of representative of a generation Mm. that was, you know, very volatile at the time. Mm. And Mike Nichols, who directed it, really just, he started to break some rules. He started breaking rules. And so from a filmmaker's perspective, for young filmmakers, it was amazing because he was doing things differently. And But it also had some really sort of risque, at the time, risque topics in it, yeah. you know. And so I think the first time I saw The Graduate, I was 11 or 12 years old. And my parents used to take me to I saw Rosemary's Baby when I was 11, oh my which goodness, that's, could probably explain a lot about, about horror my, my horror film. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just an important film, and I love it. I still love it, and so that's why I chose it. Okay, so The Graduate nominated for seven Oscars. That's a nice, hefty haul of nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress. And it won only for Best Director, not for Best Cinematography. That no. surprises me. Well, I think that it the cinematography was different for the time. And so I just don't think people were really ready for that. You know, we look at it now and it's really kind of yes. normal. But back in 1967, it, it really wasn't. And I think it needs to be noted that this was Mike Nichols' second yes. movie. And he gets the Academy Award for Best Director. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. His first movie being Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is also an excellent film, but done in black and white. I'm a little surprised that we don't have the film editor nominated because I thought the editing in this film is really, really phenomenal. Again, you know, the editing is very unique. You know, you see cuts in this movie that you hadn't seen up until this time. Like the one moment that jumps out when Mrs. Robinson first comes back to Benjamin into Elaine's bedroom. There's this triple cut that happens. There are three jump cuts that... That was really unique for 1967. Yeah, it's almost like this film has been cursed with sort of the Citizen Kane curse, where it was too innovative that they didn't even catch on to everything that they were doing and therefore didn't properly credit them, I think. I would agree, yeah. So this film is based on a 1963 book, The Graduate, 
by Charles Webb. Now, Charles Webb himself is an interesting kind of character. I'm, I mean, upon reading about him, he lived this sort of non-materialistic lifestyle. He was a nudist at some points. He sold his rights to this novel for $20,000, which, of course, even in 1960, you could certainly get more than that for the rights to a novel. He turned down an inheritance from his father, and he did all these menial jobs, and he kind of lived in poverty at times by choice. So he was, you kind of understand, I guess, the character of the main character of the film based on the fact that he clearly didn't want to have this sort of middle class or rich lifestyle. So it makes the, the film a little bit more understandable coming from that. Well, I think, too, that there was a phrase back in the 60s, tune in turn on and drop out. And I think that's what he did. I think that's what the the writer did. He was living that sort of rebellious Mm -hmm. lifestyle where, uh, and and that's a big theme in the movie, you know, do I really want to have this American dream lifestyle with, you know, two kids in the suburbs? And I think it's really a, a big message. And I think that's why the script is the way it is. Yeah. And so the screenplay was by, well, credited Calder Willingham and Buck Henry. Now, Calder Willingham, he made a first treatment of the script. He may have put together a complete screenplay, I think. But kind of, I guess that Mike Nichols didn't really care for it. He kind of disregarded it. He got Buck Henry. He wrote a whole nother screenplay. But then Calder Willingham was like, hey, look, I just spent all my time doing this. I want a credit on this film. And he went and petitioned. He took it to arbitration and he wound up getting a credit for the film. But Buck Henry is the the real screenwriter on this film. He's yep. final screenplay. Buck Henry worked a lot in he worked a lot in TV. He was an actor actually, and he's in the film. Yes. He plays the hotel concierge or the hotel clerk, whatever you would yeah. call him. A real it, funny guy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, Buck Henry was very influential in, uh, in the early days of Saturday Night yeah. Live. So Buck Henry was around for comedy forever. Yeah. So he was, as we said, nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay on this film. He's also nominated for Best Director. He also directed some, too, and for Heaven Can Wait. So this guy, can, you know, kind of did it all. And I think he worked really closely with Mike Nichols in a lot of a lot of this I think Mike Nichols was very involved in the screenplay as well and sort of film editor. This is the fellow I I want to talk a little bit about because I feel like he didn't get his due in this film. This is Sam Osteen, a three-time Academy Award nominee. One of the Academy Awards is for Who's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, so he worked with Mike Nichols in that one. Chinatown which is another amazing film, and Silkwood, which I'm not familiar with Silkwood. It's different from yeah, the others I've that he did. I've not seen it. Yeah. So to actually he and Mike Nichols worked together on 12 films, so apparently really liked him. Yep. And just some of the things that really caught my attention with the editing personally is the montage where he would go from his life at home to his life with Mrs. Robinson. It would just cut. He'd be in the pool, and then he'd be in the bed. And that just cutting back and forth with that wonderful Simon and Garfunkel music throughout the montage. I mean, I just, I really enjoy the way he cut back and forth so seamlessly that it seemed like he was literally just going from one thing directly into the next without any... The editing is really responsible for the pacing of this movie. Yeah. And... You can tell that Mike Nichols picks his shots. Every scene is is planned out and plotted out. And what we call mise-en-scene in in the film, you know, every frame is a picture. Every frame is a painting, you know. So, but the editing definitely helps the pacing of the movie. And you really get the feel for the film through the editing, without a doubt. And some of the things with the audio, too, like starting some of the dialogue when he's in a different scene, starting the dialogue from one scene when he's in, still in the previous scene, like when he's in the pool in that wetsuit, and then he's they're starting the dialogue of him talking on the phone yeah. to Mrs. Robinson. That sort of thing, I assume, it was the editor. Yeah, that is an editing choice. The, the director has a lot of influence on all of that. Oh, yeah. Well, but, you know, the director, and I can't speak to how Nichols worked as a director, but a lot of directors let their editors take a first pass, yeah. and then they sort of refine it from there. Yeah, I mean, and the editors are the ones that technically make it happen, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. You know, it's a team effort. It's the only art out there that's truly a team effort. And that's why Nichols worked with them so much is because they were in sync with each other. They could communicate with each other. And you know that they talked a lot before they started one day of shooting. They really just 
plotted it out and planned it out. And those things were not spontaneous. Those things were planned. Yeah. Mike Nichols was a big one for rehearsals. I mean, they yeah. said he did, what, almost a month worth of rehearsals yeah. before they even began to shoot the film. That's not always common with directors. It, it's not. But Nichols came from the theater. He was mm-hmm. very involved in theater before he got into film. And, you know, that's a very theatrical thing. And and if you, if you close your eyes when you're watching The Graduate... Right. It almost sounds like a play. It almost sounds like you're listening to a play as opposed to a movie. It's very theatrical in style. And part of that, I think, is because they had the rehearsal process. A lot of times when I was an actor, I would walk on the set and I would get lines handed to me at that moment. There were many times where I didn't have a lot of preparation because a lot of directors don't come from the theater where rehearsal is important. Right. So... Because of Nichols' background, I think that's why they did the month of rehearsal. Yeah, and another person I want to point out before we get onto like the big guns is the costume designer. And the only reason I want to point her out, Patricia Ziprote. I don't know, <laughs> it's a tough name, but I was really impressed with what she kind of did. You see a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of black and white in this movie. You will notice all the mothers, Ben's mother's cost, costumes or outfits are all black and white. They put Mrs. Robinson in an animal print and almost everything she wears has some animal print somewhere as if they're trying to represent her. Or I heard like a jungle cat or a predatory animal. So stuff like that I thought was really well done. And she did a really nice job of capturing the time period of, you know, sort of that Jackie O style to almost into the mod style is sort of what I consider the outfits to look like. I'm a big fashion, vintage fashion person, so I really appreciated the outfits, except I guess Catherine Ross. They said she wore mostly her own clothes. Okay. So she's the one person I think that Patricia did not dress, and that's why she looks a little bit more like hippie-ish. You know, you kind of get that hippie sense from her, This was also appropriate for the time. But to the big ones, cinematographer Robert Surtees, six-time Oscar nominee. He won an Oscar for Best Cinematography three times, Ben-Hur, which is amazing. Yeah. King Solomon's Mind, which is a, one of my personal favorite movies. It's a really cute movie. And The Bad and the Beautiful. So this guy is a really great cinematographer, and he learned a lot from Greg Tolan. He worked with Greg Tolan, who is responsible for Citizen Kane and one of the greatest cinematographers ever. So probably where he learned a lot of these tricks with the lenses that he does. He does a lot of lens tricks. He does a lot of close-ups, a lot of long shots. He is a stickler for precise color control and proper exposure of the negative. He's really big on arranging his lighting. And then the use of that 500-millimeter lens in some of those shots to portray... Yeah, there's a the camera work in this movie is revolutionary as well. But when he he wants to show how lonely somebody is, he pulls back. Mm-hmm. Like there's that crushing moment with Mrs. Robinson in the hallway where yeah. all of a sudden everything is exposed and all of a sudden we pull back, you know. Yeah, just this and, white wall. Yeah. She's just in the corner against exactly. this white wall. Exactly. She's in this corner just crushed and even in the beginning of the film when we're going handheld during the party, the graduation party. Yeah, that's really cool. Where he's tight. He's tight on Benjamin mm-hmm. the whole time. You know, we're very, very tight. We're getting this sort of claustrophobic feel. And that we're going handheld, which is almost like documentary news style. Yeah. Those are things that were not really done back in the day, you know. And so... The camera work in this film is really exciting as well. There's other moments when when Benjamin goes up to Berkeley, goes to the college campus. Time and we're far away from him mm-hmm. there because he's, again, just alone and, and lost. And so he really used the camera to tell the story as well. And that, again, is just one of those elements that makes this movie great. Yeah, the shots of him driving across the bridge, the, the when he's sitting in that square in Berkeley, and they're way high up. They're, they're yeah. coming from, I don't know, maybe they have a crane. I'm not sure how they no, did it. that would be a helicopter. They're way high up. Yeah. And then, again, you get your editor, and they have this time-lapse sort of thing where he's sitting there by himself, and the next thing you know, there's people all around the square. It's really, right. really great stuff. I think they're going in the wrong direction on that bridge. I'm not yes, sure. that's what they said. They did? Yes. Yeah. Because I think they're going away from from where they want to go, but to go the right direction would have been on the bottom level of that bridge, and they wouldn't have been able to get the shot shot that they got. I think they said they were on a helicopter on that one. Yeah, that would have been a chopper, yeah. So one of my personal favorite shots, trick shots, or whatever you would call it in the film, is when Dustin Hoffman is sitting at this table in the hotel, and the table's got a mirrored surface, and he sort of starts off with showing him sitting there, and then he 
it shows the reflection of him. And then she comes in and Bancroft comes in and you're still seeing the reflection. Then he slowly like pans up into their them yep. sitting there together. I just thought that was a really phenomenal there, shot. There's, a, there's an earlier moment where a reflection is used in the film. And it's one of the risque moments of the film, actually. When she mm. comes into the room undressed, you see a reflection in the glass of her naked. And yep. that's that reflection is important as well. Yeah. So reflections are used a few times in the film. Yeah. And when he's wearing the mask as the diver and you see that that just that point of view from the diver with that. I'm not how, sure how he did that. I thought that was a really great they would cut out well. a mat, a lens mat for that. Mm-hmm. And that's how they would do that. Now, see, that's why we have you here to explain <laughs> these things to me. And then finally, we talk about our director, Mike Nichols. Five Oscar nominations. One, he won the Oscar for this film. He also did, obviously, He's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, like we said. He did Working Girl. I feel like he's really good at getting into the psyche of the characters, showing the realism and the emotions of the characters. But also, he's kind of paradoxical to me in this film. You have the realism of the emotions of the characters, but then you have such a caricature of some of the people. They don't behave like normal people. He started out as a comedy. They're almost like skit people. You kind of can see them like the parents are very, not very realistic. They are caricatures. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's on on purpose. I really do. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Mike Nichols started out in improv doing sketch comedy. And he was part of a comedy team, Nichols and May, yep. with Elaine May. And so his instinct is is to sort of go that way. But I think it was also the word um, plastics is yes. huge. That's probably out of the few quotes from The Graduate that are remembered, plastics is really the, the big one. And I think part of that's part of the theme of the movie is how the older generation was very plastic mm-hmm. very superficial yep. and i think he played those older characters as caricatures yep. because it made them more plastic I agree. They said glass, plastic, and water theme throughout. So there you go. And I love that he was influenced by George Stevens' Place in the Sun. That is a movie that's very dear to my heart because I love Montgomery Clift. It's a wonderful, beautiful movie. And if you've seen A Place in the Sun, you can see the influence in The Graduate, to be honest, especially with a lot of the close-ups. He does a lot of water in this. You see the fish tank. You see the pool. He's underwater a lot. It's sort of, I guess, to symbolize the character is drowning in in a way. You notice also sort of the the whole scene when everything blows up, when the affair is revealed, you know, we have all of that sort of blowing up. It's pouring out. It's raining. It's storming. There's a storm raging. And then the water imagery, once Benjamin sort of makes up his mind what he's going to do, that water imagery starts to fade away. We don't don't really see much more water in the film after that last sort of storm where Benjamin sort of makes up his mind. Because that is one of the themes of the movie, being lost, being adrift, Mm -hmm. being in a storm, not really knowing what to do. And that was sort of how a whole generation felt in 1967. You know, you have to look at 1967 as a year in total that made this movie work because only four years before John Kennedy had been assassinated, there was all of a sudden a complete mistrust of government and the older generation. And 1967 was a watershed year not only for movies, but music and politics. You know, we started seeing things happening in movies that weren't happening other than The Graduate. You had Sidney Poitier did three films that yeah. he did Sir With Love, he did In the Heat of the Night, and he also did well, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah. So there's that. And then you also had another movie which came out that was very revolutionary for its time, which was Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. All of that was 1967. Uh, it helped make The Graduate so important of a film. Yeah, so we might as well start talking a little bit about the plot. I think we've covered the crew here. Let's talk yeah. about the plot of the film. So we start off on a plane. We see Dustin Hoffman's character. His name in the film is Benjamin... Braddock. Braddock. Benjamin Braddock. And he's sitting on a plane, and they said, I guess it's kind of significant. They said, we're starting our descent into Los Angeles. Yeah. So, yeah. and if, descent if you, being the... If you look at that opening shot, he's sitting there. Yeah. And the older woman who's next to him is just staring at him. And you have right there in that one shot sort of the message of the film, yeah. that sort of generation gap. And that's an important moment because it comes back around at the end of the film. Yeah, which so, we're not going to tell at the end of the no, film. No, we but, cannot do that. Yeah, but that's okay. We're going to go on, though, now. And he gets home, and he, he, we find out, of course, that he's just graduated from college. And he comes home, and he's his parents are trying to throw him this 
party, his graduation party. And he spends a lot of time sitting in his room just looking at this fish tank. Again, you're getting a symbolism here with the fish tank and the fish. And I feel like he feels in a way like he is, especially when they go down to the party, it's almost like he's the one in the fish tank. Everybody's staring at him. And it's a very circusy theme sometimes with the parents. You get this sense of circus to me, just this crazy chaos. Yeah. And that is very representative of the fact that Benjamin, he's in chaos. He doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. And he's very lost and very just doesn't know. And he says that throughout the film. He does say that. That he doesn't really know what he's doing or where he's going or what he's going to do. So I think that chaos really plays into that theme. Yeah. And you can see that he's uber uncomfortable in this situation. He just looks miserable and he manages to escape and go back up into his room. And who should come walking in but our friend Anne Bancroft, who I think is really, really phenomenal in this film. She is. I think the best actor in the film. Right. Sorry to Dustin Hoffman, but I really think Anne Bancroft is the best thing in this film. Yeah, she's fantastic. And there's actually a moment during the chaos where she is sitting there smoking a cigarette, just looking at him. Yeah. And you could almost say she's sizing up the prey and she's alone and she's just sitting there calmly smoking a cigarette while all this chaos is going on around Benjamin, you know, so. And she's always sort of very one level. She's never severely higher, except for when she starts to talk about her daughter, I guess. But other than that, she's always on the same sort of level, like non-caring, nonchalant. She seems beaten down, world-weary type person to me. I just think she's miserable with her, her life. But she comes up to the room and she's been kind of just ordering him about, disregarding any time he says, I don't want to do this. She just ignores him. She's smoking her cigarette, just flicking ashes all over his room. Yeah. And there is, if you look at those two characters, there's a similarity between the two of them. Yeah. They both are unhappy. They both don't really know what they want. Both kind of beaten down. Yeah. She definitely is in charge without a doubt. Yes. She's going after what she wants. And, but I think that the fact that they are both unhappy is how they end up together in the first place. Yeah, I agree. And I think this would be very non-appropriate if we had swapped the genders here. But yeah, yeah. so one of those double standards we get. But probably a lot of young men thought this was a great film and this kind of became like their fantasy. But so she basically orders him to take her home. And and he is clearly trying to avoid all this. And she just, just disregards everything he says. He takes her home. He has this fancy car. I think an Aston Martin, isn't it? No, it's an FO Romero. Spider, sixteen hundred. Yeah, I don't know anything about cars. Yeah, it's it's a good thing we have you here to talk about cars too. Anyhow, so he takes her in this fancy car of his home and they go into the house. <laughs> I find her house interesting. I find those what they are pouring the liquor out of interesting. It seems like they have these ginormous things. Decanters. Like what does this represent like the sort of gaudy over the topness? Well, it's interesting. One of the other things that one of the other themes in the movie is Benjamin is never heard. He's always saying things and people aren't listening to right. him. Right. Which in a way uh, plays into Mrs. Robinson telling him what to do all the time. She's not listening to him. If you look at those decanters, one is scotch, one is bourbon. Yep. He always asks for bourbon. And they, give him they always give him scotch. He always gets scotch. <laughs> so nobody's listening to him. So it's just those decanters are important because they're, again, symbolic and representative of the fact that he's not being listened to. Yeah, but he's yeah. the big, huge things. Yeah. And so, same with the lighter she picks up. It's a big, huge lighter. It's just like everything is over the top big in this house or yeah. something. So I don't know if that's meant to portray wealth or just that was just happened to be that way. I don't know. But she's clearly trying to seduce him. And he is aware and he keeps trying to get away from her. And he's saying, oh, I think you're trying to seduce me. And then she's laughing at him. No, I'm not. She's really, really being very manipulative in this particular scene and she does that one shot where she picks her legs up and she separates her legs and then they do that really great camera shot where you can see between her legs and he says I think you're trying to zeus me Mrs. Robinson and it's just such a great moment in the film yeah and and actually that camera work happens a few times in the film so we shoot through her legs yep. back to Benjamin. There's other times where they're on campus. We shoot through some of the architecture. We're shooting through, I, I think there's a another shot on campus or, where we're shooting through a railing or something like that. But that sort of camera passing through things yeah. happens a lot, you know, in yeah. the film. Yeah, can't give enough credit to the cinematographer. Really, such a yeah. beautiful job. I mean, it really is. It looks almost like a modern film. Yeah, it, it does. doesn't look 
looked like a 1967 film, to be yeah. honest. I mean, as far as the camera work. So anyhow, she gets him to go up to the daughter's room. The daughter's name is Elaine. She wants to show him this portrait of Elaine. He thinks maybe he's wrong. He starts apologizing profusely. The poor guy is completely confused. And she, when she gets him up there is that scene that you like where she takes off her shirt and she helped me unzip my shirt and he helps her and then oh could you go get my purse and she he runs downstairs to get her purse and he comes back up and that's when you see that scene that you like where you see you catch a glimpse of her in the mirror where she you can see the back of her she's well, naked I like a lot of the scenes in the movie <laughs> the, the this scene's important because it's pivotal and it takes place in Elaine's room yeah which is yeah, that's just, really yeah. v- very important. And Elaine's room is all white. You know, it symbolizes Elaine's uh, virginity and purity and all these things that's very important to know and sort of understand and appreciate. When we meet Elaine, we actually meet Elaine. And Benjamin and Elaine go out on their date. And what happens on that date yeah. um, is really... So to appreciate that scene in that room and in that moment is very important. Yes, yeah, so he comes in, she's naked. And they, you do, now they're, you're doing this sort of, again, these editing shots or these cuts back and forth. You see a close-up of his face looking at her and then a close-up of like breast, but real fast. Yeah, and then stomach and then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just back and forth, back and forth, like really, really quick, 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 which is really interesting. So you're showing a naked woman without really showing. Yes, which even just suggesting that in 1967 yeah. was pretty risque. Yeah, you correct. Know? And of course, even the directing at this moment where Benjamin is staring at certain body parts yeah. of Mrs. Robinson, great directing choices there, really great directing choices. Yeah, and he also even said he wanted her to have the tan lines, and they actually put makeup on to make it look like she had tan lines mm. on. But he was so very specific about every little thing, Mike Nichols. He wanted everything done a certain way. And I listened to the commentary of this. Dustin Hoffman does the commentary on The Graduate, and he kept saying over and over again while he was watching the film, saying about Mike Nichols wanted this like this and this like this, and he was very adamant about how he wanted everything. And I kind of think that's one of the reasons he chose Dustin Hoffman is because he didn't have a great body of film work and he could probably like really mold him into what he wanted the character to be. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman was 30 when that movie was made. But I I believed him. I believed that he was just a recent college graduate. And uh, the original cast of this movie was Robert Redford as Mm -hmm. Benjamin and Doris Day as Mrs. Robinson. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. So wrong as far as well, Doris all the Day way would, Doris Day refused to do it because she wouldn't do any nudity. She flat out, she had a horrible husband named Melcher that would put her in all these things without even consulting her. Yeah. And when she found out about this film, she said, I, I refuse to do anything that has nudity. And which is ironic because Anne Bancroft didn't even do the nude scene. It was done by a, a body, double. Body, body double. Yeah, but Anne Bancroft was the right choice, oh, no matter what. Absolutely. And, and so was Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman, again, came from the theater. He had done some some theater prior to this. And if I recall, Mike Nichols saw him in a play. Yeah, I think that's, correct. that's where he saw him first. And so, of course, it's easy to say in retrospect that it was perfectly cast. But I, I think even from a director's perspective, Dustin Hoffman was right for the role. And Dustin Hoffman didn't consider himself right for the role. Dustin no. Hoffman thought he was miscast. The, the person in the book was more a Rod Redford type person, all American yeah. type guy. And I mean, as a woman watching this, you do get the sense of why are all these women so attracted to this guy? Because he's not doesn't have a great personality. He's not very interesting. And he's not all that great looking. As a woman, you say, no, this doesn't make any sense. Whereas if you had somebody like Robert Redford, you say, oh, yes, this makes sense. But to men, I think it speaks more to men. I think it does. And I think that there is a statement here that in 1967, that sort of angst that the youth had, that's kind of what makes him attractive in a way. I think just for the exact reason you said he wouldn't be right is exactly why he is right, because Mrs. Robinson saw him as an easy mark. Yeah, but why does Catherine like him? That's what I don't know. That's what doesn't make sense. Why Why does Elaine like him? I think it's because of that angst. I think it's because of that openness and that honesty. I think it's it's not hideous. And I think that there is an attraction to the, the fact that 
He's got a certain honesty about him. Mm. And I think that that is more important. Robert Redford wouldn't have worked. He would have been too, I think, looked too confident. He would have looked too in control, too handsome. I think you had to sort of have the the anti-hero at that point. And that's why Dustin Hoffman was perfect for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mike Nichols thought it, and it was Mike Nichols' movie. So I just didn't really jibe with what was in the book. But he adjusted the book to fit what Mike Nichols wanted to do. Yeah. Like I said, we, Mike Nichols deals a lot with emotional aspects of characters. He does a really good job of it in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Sure. So anyhow, then a car pulls up. It's the husband coming home. So he's frantic, has running to get downstairs. And she's like, you know, you just keep in mind. You call me, blah, 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 or something like that. He goes downstairs and then he has this interesting conversation with the father, Mr. Robinson, played by Murray Hamilton. Really liked him, too, in the film, actually. It's great. Really great. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the job he did as Mr. Robinson. He, he's sitting there telling, sitting in the living room with them. Again, he pours them, you know, like you said, pours them the wrong drink, just doesn't listen to him. And he's telling him, you need to sow your wild oats. You need to get with women and this right. and that. Yeah. And then in the meantime, Mrs. Robinson comes down and he's asking her, don't you agree? And she's like, it's just, she plays everything so coolly and so subtly, I think. Yes, she does. And I think something that's never really said in the movie, but if you think about it historically, that generation of parents went through the Depression. They Mm -hmm. went through World War II. A lot of them were veterans. They fought in World War II and they saw this horrific world. And I think parents of that generation were like, hey, life is short. Mm. Let's party. Let's enjoy it. There's rules. You know, you got to go to college and start a family and but have fun while you're doing it. And I think that Mr. Robinson saying, you know, you got to go out and have fun yeah. and sow wild oats is him sort of lamenting the way his life went. Yeah. We find out later on in the film, actually, when... We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get to there. So another thing that I thought was interesting is the way they keep trying to, he seems to keep trying to pimp out his daughter to this guy. And so does his parents. It's like they're desperate to get these two together, Elaine and Benjamin. They keep insisting that they should go on a date, which of course, Mrs. Robinson, (laughs) this is the one time you see like a real reaction from her, like an actual passionate anger reaction from her is when she thinks he might date Elaine and she becomes very upset about that. She makes a promise he won't. Right. And you don't know. I think you don't really know. And and, and again, the parents are friends. Yeah. The fathers are partners, they're yep. business partners. And it was kind of like the natural thing to do back in those days was to get your, your, your children, children together. together. But I don't know if Mrs. Robinson was jealous. Jealous, I know. What is her motivation? she didn't think that Benjamin was the right person well, she for says her that. daughter. She does say that later on. Yeah, but you don't know. She could be, of course, just saying that because she doesn't right, want to admit to being jealous. Own, yeah. So, jealousy. Yeah, so he winds up escaping that whole situation. Thank goodness for him. He gets out of there. And, you know, he gets back over to his parents. And, and I think this is the scene where they have him in the wetsuit. And this, again, a very carnival-type atmosphere with the father. Is The father is such a caricature. Just could almost imagine him in a carnival saying, here's the next attraction or something. That played by William Daniels. Yes. I just, I don't know. What do you think of that character? I like the character. Is it? I, I think it makes a lot of sense because, again, his parents weren't listening to him. Yeah. And his father was kind of had his own agenda. And it didn't matter what Benjamin felt or thought or wanted. He just did what he wanted to do. And I think aside from putting him into a clown suit, putting him into, a, into scuba gear <laughs> scuba was gear. sort of the next humiliating yeah. thing he could do, right? In all honesty, it just, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it was except, a very strange except, part. Except, look, you know, he was a star athlete. Benjamin yeah. was a star athlete in college. And I think they are sort of trying to get him into adventure and going into the world. And, you know, and when he goes into the pool in his scuba gear, yeah. he ends up very much looking like the little Man. figure that's in, yep. the, uh, in his, I, in his aquarium, right? Yep. And, and even the way that that is framed in the camera yeah. when you see the, the little scuba guy in the opening yep. sequences at the house where the scuba divers in the left side of the frame yep. Benjamin gets in the pool and the camera pulls back and moves to the right and all of a sudden he's in the exact same position as that little, di- little figurine little guy is in, his, in yep. the in the uh, pool and if you watch a lot Benjamin ends up in the left third of the screen 
a lot in this movie. And that is a director's choice. And we won't go into heavy-duty filmmaking class here, but we break the screen up into ninths. And so you have the top third, middle third, bottom third, left third, middle third, and right third. Benjamin ends up in the left third a lot. And that's a very strong position visually because of the way our eyes work. And so Nichols has Benjamin in the left side of the frame. If you watch the movie again, see how many times Benjamin ends up in the left side of the frame. And what does that symbolize? Just We're supposed to be focused on him. We're supposed to be looking at him. Again, that shot of him just in the corner of the pool all by himself when all these people are up there escaping, drowning, whatever, just getting away from these people and the whole circus, whatever that the father is perpetrating. Then this is when that thing I like with the audio where he's in the pool and you start hearing the phone call. And then the next thing you know, it cuts right to the phone call where he's calling Mrs. Robinson and asking her to come have a drink at the hotel. And she's like, well, did you get a room? And he's like, no. (laughs) His character is very, I don't know, deadpan. He's 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 young. He doesn't know. He's he's lost. He is that sheep, you know. Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of expression. Doesn't have a lot of emotion. Just again, I guess like Mrs. Robinson, because she doesn't really either. Right. But his is more a sort of dopey way, I guess. Maybe kind of a dopey quality to him. So he he winds up going to the hotel clerk, who is Buck Henry, right? And he gets all nervous and he's afraid to tell him that he wants a room, and he gets all shy about it. And then the guy thinks he's there for this reception and he sends him into this reception and there's these wonderful collection of four people supposedly comedians they're all old yeah and they're comedians too i think again it's that imagery of young and old that stream of people coming out are Mm -hmm. like grandparents you know they're so old and it's just non-stop he's surrounded by it so yeah, yeah I well, think they that's want a very to, important they want him to come to the party but he's like no I can't and I'm going to meet somebody and I don't even belong here and this, his behavior is very odd but he comes back out and Mrs. Robinson comes down and she tells him to go to get a room that's when they have that really beautiful table scene that I like yes and he gets a room and there was that the funny part where <laughs> Buck Henry's dinging the bell for the bellboy, and he doesn't want the bellboy, so he puts his hand over the belt of the keep him, and he smacks his hand. This is really funny. I don't know why. I think that's I think that's quite funny. I don't know why, but anyhow, so they get the room, and then this is when they have kind of their first encounter, and he uh, he's very awkward in the scene, which I guess is what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. Is very awkward. It's probably uh, his first experience with a woman. I mean, she asks him that and he tries to play off like it's not. But there's a lot of really beautiful lighting in the scene, too. If you watch the scene, the way it's lit, it's very beautifully done. And there's one point where he puts his hand on her breast. It just looks so awkward. But I mean, it works for Lynn. She's all she's doing is trying to wipe off her shirt. She's not even paying attention. Again, not paying attention to him, I guess. But I guess he's getting scared and he wants to leave or he's getting all in his head about it. And she challenges him by saying, oh, well, if you're too inexperienced and and again, she's so manipulative. Yeah, she manipulates so him the whole movie. So manipulative. Yep. And the smile she gives, like when she gets what she wants, is just, ah, uh, she's, she's rotten. She's rotten. Yep. Rotten lady. So then they get together. And then I think that's when you start to see that montage where he's at home in the pool. Then he's at her house. That really, really nice montage with the well, Simon and Garfunkel. We start to see something else happen at that moment in the movie. When he first met Mrs. Robinson at his graduation party, she came into his room smoking a cigarette Mm -hmm. and he was an athlete so he didn't smoke right after he has that first encounter with her all of a sudden he's smoking cigarettes he's wearing shades yeah he was a lot all of a sudden he becomes a little cooler yeah after he has that first encounter with mrs robinson it seems a little more confident too to be honest like you, you get a sense of confidence and so you get that That changed. So what you called, I don't know, I think you said dopey. Mm -hmm. That is definitely a director's choice. And so that we have the contrast that after he's bitten the apple in the Garden of Eden, he's definitely more in control. He's definitely more mature. He's doing more mature things. And that moment, that first encounter is really a pivotal point in the movie. It sends us into act two, basically. I like when he's laying in the pool and he's got his sunglasses on and the father and the mother and Mrs. and Mr. Robinson comes over. And I like what he did with the way he made them look. The cinematographer, the kind of blurred, especially the most blurred is Mrs. Robinson of the four. And now he's like, I'm too cool. I don't care. And the mother even has to say, say hello to Mrs. Robinson. He's like, oh, hello, Mrs. Robinson. You see 
the power dynamic has yeah. shifted slightly. But that montage I love so much with going back and forth from his house to her, to the hotel with her, to his house. And it's just so seamlessly back and forth. And of course, I really, really like the Simon and Garfunkel. I really like it. Some people might not enjoy that. Oh, no, I love fantastic. it. I love it. Yeah. I know people again, don't usually, that was, that's not usual. Right. Very different. Yeah. You had two folk singers on guitars as opposed to a big orchestra. You didn't have a big score, which most movies had up until that point, right? But the music is fantastic in this. Yeah, and appropriate for 1967. I mean, it fits right in with the sort of what was coming up to be like the hippie movement. Yes, exactly. So then his parents force him to go on a date with Elaine, which he promised Mrs. Robinson that she wouldn't. As a matter of fact, actually before that happens is that scene where they're in bed together and she keeps turning the light on, turning the light off, turning the light on. And he starts asking her about herself because he says they never talk, they just do this. And he starts trying to find out information about her. And this is where she kind of divulges why she's where she's at. She was an art major, but she wound up hooking up with Mr. Robinson. They never have first names, uh, Mr. Robinson. And we find out she winds up getting pregnant with Elaine. And that's sort of what her life became. She became a housewife and a mother. And she was very young. She didn't have a chance to go off and do whatever she might have been able to do. And I think that's where we see what she really regrets about her life. Or And, And I think her having the affair with Benjamin is her trying to recapture yeah. some of that youth. Our you know? youth. Yeah, 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 something like that. And he keeps asking her questions. Then he starts saying something about her daughter. And that's when she gets infuriated. And she grabs him by the hair. Right. And supposedly, Dustin, I hear that she really grabbed him by the hair. And he was really hurt. And he was really angry about it because she really hurt him. And she said, basically, you stay away from Elaine. You promised me you stay away from Elaine. And he said, I promise. I wasn't really even interested, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you know, the parents are like forcing him to go and date this Elaine. He comes over to the house to pick her up and she's just sitting there. And you can just see she wants to murder him at this Mm -hmm. point. She just looks so angry. And the father's like, yeah, well, you better watch out for this boy. You never know what tricks he might know and this and that, you know, saying all these silly things. And they go off and he takes her on this horrendous date purposely, I guess, to try to push her off. Yeah, dissuade her from being interested in him, you know. They go to burlesque. No, it's a burlesque show. but Burlesque, that sounds so much nicer. It does, doesn't it? But, (laughs) and I think... This is a credit to Catherine Ross's acting ability. Her emotional reaction in this movie, in this moment in the movie, is just unbelievable. Nichols plays a lot of subtext. He plays, what are the actors thinking Mm -hmm. at this moment? And you just watch her face, and then all of a sudden, the tears are coming down her. I mean, just an incredible moment of acting in that movie, maybe one of the best. And she's obviously, she looks incredibly humiliated. Yes, she looks, you she know, was. maybe she had a hope that this would be a nice date and yeah. she's devastated. As a woman, you could understand how you would feel about that. But I was really impressed the way the dancer was able to sort of like <laughs> she'd swing Do those, those tassels, tassels around. Like I was like, wait, how was she doing that? Yeah. Yeah, that was very impressive. Yeah, that had to hurt. <laughs> she starts to cry and he feels bad. And then I think he starts to get a realization that he maybe has feelings for her and he takes her away from there and they go and get hamburgers or something at the drive-in. And then they're just talking and here's one person that seems to be more listening to him, maybe the only person in the movie that actually hears him. Yes, and they go to this hamburger place where you pull up and the car hops bring you the the food, right? And so there's a lot of noise and commotion and Benjamin just wants to focus on Elaine. And Elaine wants to focus on Benjamin. And they put the roof up on the Alfa Romeo and they close the windows and it's just the two of them and they're just enjoying each other and enjoying the moment. And all of a sudden, Benjamin feels something for the first time in the movie. We see Benjamin feeling something, which is so important. Yeah. It's very sweet, the scenes between them. And he goes to drive her back and she invites him into the house, which obviously, you know, he doesn't want to go into the house. And so he says, well, let's go somewhere and get a drink and so she suggests the Taft Hotel, which is this place he always took. This is a, I think this is a very funny scene. This place that he always took Mrs. Robinson. And when she suggests that, he drives up over the curb. <laughs> and then he goes there. He's like, I don't think they have a bar here. He's trying to get her to get out of there. And she's like, no, there's a bar right here. And, and then everybody people, in the hotel knows him. like, hello, hello. <laughs> but they're calling him the wrong name because yeah. when he first signed up, he signed up under the name Gladstone or yeah, something Mr. like that. Yeah. And so everybody's like, hello, Mr. Gladstone. Hello, hello. And she just keeps looking at him. I'm like, what is going on? And of course, he's like, whoa, I think they mistake me for somebody named 
Gladstone. But then the old lady at the end, she calls him Mr. Banif or whatever because she thought that was his name. Well, when he faked his way into the original party, party he used reception. that fake name, yeah. So they get together. Now they like each other. Of course, Mrs. Robinson's really angry, but he keeps coming around. But then you have your rain scene that you're talking about where he comes to pick her up and Mrs. Robinson comes out into the car and she's like, this is it. You're not seeing her anymore. This is the end of that. She's like, I'm going to tell her what happened between us. And he freaks out and he runs into the house because he's like, I'm going to tell her before she tells her. So he runs into the house and he busts into the house. He busts into her room and he's like, I have to tell you something, this and that. Let's go outside. Side, let's go. And then he's trying to tell her and she's like, what? What is it? He's like, you know, this older lady I was telling you about, blah, 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 blah. And then he doesn't even say it, but she looks behind her and she sees that the mother is there and there's just such a look on both of their faces right. that she immediately realizes that it was Mrs. Robinson, her mother, that was the older lady that he was involved with. And she becomes really upset. And then that's when you see that scene that you were talking about with Mrs. Robinson in the corner yes. uh, in the white. And so then she doesn't want to see him anymore. And then at some point, the father comes and threatens him or tells him to stay away from Elaine. No. Yeah. No. He, Does the, he? Yeah. The father comes at some point. I don't remember if it's after he goes to the college or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, that happens when he yeah. chases Elaine up to Yeah. So Berkeley. he, yeah. He, then the father comes yeah. and has a conversation yeah, with him. So yeah. Goes, I thought you meant in that but scene. But first he tells his parents that he's going to marry Elaine. And they're like, oh, that's great. And he's like, well, she doesn't know it. And they're right. like, oh, well, he's like, no, she doesn't like me. <laughs> and so then he goes to Berkeley. And then we have the beautiful shot across the bridge. We had the beautiful shot at Berkeley, which apparently they weren't even allowed to shoot there. No. And they just kind of had to... That's actually USC. Oh, well, they, apparently they had to sneak around making well, they shot shots. some establishing shots there, right. But most of the campus shots are done at USC in LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyhow, he winds up finding Elaine and chasing her down when she's on a bus and talking to her and following her to the zoo and all these things. And eventually he does sort of win her back over. <laughs> Another thing I really like is he gets a place in this rooming house with all these guys. And I really, really love the guy that's the head of the house. Norman Fell. Who is his name? Mr. McCleary, Norman Fell. Yes, I really enjoy his character. I think he's just so cool. I don't know. He's so mean, but I really like him a lot. And he hates Benjamin for some reason. He just hates him right off the bat. And she eventually comes, he's chasing her around and she keeps dismissing him. And then she, she comes running into his room and screaming at him that he raped her mother. And he's like, no, I didn't. And he tells her the whole story and whatever. She calms down and then they actually start to like each other again. And he keeps telling her they're going to get married and all this stuff. I have to also mention that a very young Richard Dreyfuss yeah, that's true. has his first moment on camera in that rooming house scene. So He says, do you want me to call the cops? Right. So what happens is Elaine's parents have sort of almost arranged this marriage with this sort of preppy yeah, guy. Yeah, that's true. And that's when the father is waiting for him. Yes. I guess they somehow get when the Elaine is talking to him. I don't know how. Maybe she told them. Maybe the parents told him. But the father is waiting for him in the room. And there's this scene about the shaking of the hands, which I thought was really significant. How he said, it was nothing. It was nothing with Mrs. Robinson. It was, it was only like shaking hands. And then at the end, when the father tells him, you're never seeing her again. She's gone. We've taken her away. You're never going to see her. And he said, you'll excuse me if I don't shake your hand, which I thought was really funny, a really interesting part. Yeah, it was great. So anyhow, then more stuff happens that we probably can't get too much into because then we're getting really close to the end of the film and we don't want to spoil the film. I will say I thought it was really significant when they go to the, he does go to a church, we can say that. It's a beautiful white church and the way he uses the cross to war people, I just think that is so symbolic as well and so interesting. Apparently the poor priest or the pastor of the church was terrified they were going to destroy the church. Yes. They're like, don't destroy the church. That sequence where Benjamin is heading to the church, if you start to look at that, all through the film, one of the themes is old and new and yeah. young and old. And if you watch that part of the movie closely, you start to see in the very background, almost out of focus, old cars, like cars from the 40s. And you start to see these cars. There's one scene in particular where Benjamin is running down the street with a very wide lens. So it hardly looks like he's going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And in the back is this 1940s car. And there's always these moments where there's old and new and young and old. And it's just a running theme throughout the movie. And that is a very poignant moment as he's getting closer to getting what he thinks he wants. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, we 
can't go on too much longer because we're at the very end of the film. So you will have to see for yourself what happens. Well, Marty, this is what we do here at Silver Screen Time Machine is we rate a film. And I have a strong idea of what I think your rating is going to be, but it's one through five. So let's hear your rating. I'm going to give it a five. I knew you were going to say that. Um, Just because it's so important. You know, there are moments like some little acting moments that Dustin Hoffman does early in the movie where he does this little whimper, which I always thought was very methody, you know, very Mm -hmm. method acting. But that's the time. And that that was, you know, where those guys all came from the theater. But I just think the movie deserves a five. Okay. Well, you're going to be super disappointed in me because I'm only giving it a four. So my apologies. But the first time I saw this film, which was just a couple days ago, because I had never seen this film before, I didn't like it at all. I was like, this is not a good film. This is crazy. People don't behave like this. I don't like it in the least. And then I watched it a second time. And then I watched it a third time. And I was like, oh, No, there's some really nice, great things in this film. I started to understand it better. I don't think it's a watch the first time and that's it. I think this is a definite watch numerous times. The more that you watch it, the more you're going to pick up. And it's important to sort of look into the themes, not just look at the surface of the film. Try to look into what the themes are. What is the director trying to say? Again, sort of Citizen Kane-like in that way. I keep comparing it. But yeah, that's the sense I have. The one thing I did notice even in the beginning is I really love the cinematography from the very first. I thought that was absolutely phenomenal. And I loved Anne Bancroft as well. And I just thought she was so great. Yeah, I think Anne Bancroft, Catherine Ross, Dustin Hoffman, I think just all the way around, the acting is great. And I agree, you have to look at it Mm -hmm. as a complete work of art. You can't just look at it as entertainment. Yeah, yeah. You have to look deeper than the surface of this film. So anything else you want to add? No, I love being here. This was great. Really fun. Yeah, thank you for being our guest. We really appreciate that and bringing all your great film knowledge. You also are a professor. You teach film. I do. I teach at the University of Cincinnati in the digital media department there. And I teach as an adjunct at Point Park University, where both of my degrees are from. So I spend a lot of time teaching. Yeah, so take Marty's word over mine. (laughs) It's a five. (laughs) Anyhow, thank you so much, Marty. And for Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy's Classic Film Review, this is Wendy saying goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And please leave us a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Intro and outro music composed by Heidi Engel. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick. Recorded at PCTV Studios, Pittsburgh, PA. See you next time. Yeah.